And so turning together in Acts chapter number 16, our sermon text this morning, Acts 16, and picking up where we left off last Sunday, or two Sundays ago, excuse me, uh, verse number 11. Verse number 11. So Paul and Silas have now taken Timothy with them, and we saw they have crossed over, or they're about here to cross over into uh, modern-day Greece or Macedonia. So, setting sail from Troas, that's the ancient city of Troy, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, a little island in the Aegean Sea, and the following day to Neapolis, a, a meaning new city, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. It was called Philippi because it was named after Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's father, the great king of the Macedonians. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went uh, went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. We might know that name from the book of Revelation a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She was that kind of a saleswoman, wasn't she? And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. It came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Prisons those days were not nice places, kids. These were like caves and holes and dungeons down into the depths of the earth. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, in this great, great question that all of us need to answer, Sirs, 
What must I do to be saved? And here's the answer. They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was the day, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And to all these words, God's people say, Well, we've seen, uh, or we, we, well, we have seen throughout Acts, we saw two Sundays ago the power and the leading, the presence of the Holy Spirit in Acts 16, especially when Paul and Silas and Timothy, uh, they wanted to travel throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They had their plan, they had their will, they had their desire, uh, they had planned out their path, to go a certain route in a certain way. They wanted to go west along the coast of Asia Minor, but the Holy Spirit had other plans. We read there in chapter 16 uh, at verse number 6 that they had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Imagine that. When to speak the word, but the Holy Spirit saying no. Then we read that they came into uh, Mysia. They wanted to go into Bithynia, which is then a clockwise way back east to go back home. But the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Why not? Why not? Why did the Holy Spirit disallow this beautiful, heartfelt desire to speak the word of God in the various places where Paul and Timothy and Silas no doubt had prayed and strategized to go preach. Why would the Holy Spirit forbid them? Whose will is strong here, strongest? The Spirit. It's not that these people had had a... Uh, the, the ones that the Lord sent them to were more worthy than those that Paul and Timothy and Silas wanted to speak to. No, the Holy Spirit had a plan for them. He had a purpose for them. And at that moment, it was to bypass those places to get to Macedonia, to leave Asia Minor and to enter into the Roman territories and into what is today modern-day Europe. And we see the results of that in our story here. In Philippi, this great ancient Greek, now Roman colony, named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip, they find their way there and the gospel begins to bring harvest to the ends of the earth. 
the power and leading of the Holy Spirit we've seen. And I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago, just by way of illustration, uh, and, and we all no doubt have stories like this, and uh, we might have a desire, we might have a feeling, we might have a, a burden to go somewhere to bring the gospel, uh, just like uh, my wife and I had the desire to, uh, to do what we're doing here this morning, but up in Orange County, but yet the Holy Spirit had other plans, as I, as I illustrated for us. We see the Spirit's power continue here. We see the work of the Holy Spirit poured out on the day of Pentecost, which we commemorate and celebrate today on this Pentecost Sunday. We see that Spirit's power continuing in the ministry, the journeys of the Apostle and those along with him. You notice this power, first of all, in verses 13 to 15, opening up Lydia's heart. I would hope that opening up someone's heart would be an illustration and demonstration of great power. So they make their way from ancient Troy or Troas, and they go to an island in the middle of the Aegean, Samothrace. They spend the night there. Uh, notice that just like, uh, are, are, uh, unlike when they went to Cyprus and they traversed the entire island and preached the gospel there, here it was just a quick sleep and get on the quickest ferry and ship the next day to Neapolis, which is the port city. They make their way to Philippi, this leading city, this leading city, a Roman colony. And they're there for some days. Now notice that the apostle has to, has to adjust and adapt his normal strategy. Normally when Paul goes somewhere to, to bring the good news of Jesus, where does he go first? The synagogue. synagogue. There's, only one, there's only one Jewish temple, right? That's, well, that's all the way back in Jerusalem, right? Uh, he doesn't go to pagan temples. We'll see that he does at one point go there in Athens. But he always goes first to synagogues. We, as we've been saying, uh, he goes there because these are the ancient people of God. The, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. They would have known the word of God. They would have been ready and their hearts would have been cultivated by the Holy Spirit to receive this message that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. And there would be God-fearers as well, Gentiles who were attracted to the Lord and they were attracted to the way of life that the Jews offered uh, in the commandments of the law. So he, but he has to adapt his normal strategy uh, because he gets to the city, and we have to read between the lines here, there's no synagogue. That's why he goes outside the city gate. He goes to a river to find what he would think would be a place of prayer. Why was there no synagogue in Philippi? There weren't ten Jewish males. Ten Jewish males in a location required a synagogue to be constructed. There are not even 10 Jewish men in Philippi, as well as we can reason that they're outside the city gate, so the religion of the, of the Jews was not uh, looked very highly upon. We can see that in the reaction of the, the slave masters. These men are Jews, and they're bringing new customs that are not uh, legit for us as Romans. So there weren't enough men to form a synagogue, and they're outside the city somewhere. Uh, somewhere, uh, And just like in the Psalms, we, we read when the people of God were in exile in Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we wept and we sang, and, and they asked us to sing a song of the Lord. They go to rivers, and they, in exile, outside the promised land, apart from the temple, apart from the priesthood, and so forth, there's a place of prayer. And they find there, notice, some women, and one of them who heard what they had to say, her name was Lydia from that ancient, familiar city of Thyatira. 
which we read about in Revelation. She was a seller of purple goods. The color purple was extracted at great cost. And so uh, the color purple was a very expensive color uh, to have on your dress. It was the color uh, of uh, the Roman Caesar, uh, eventually uh, of the emperor of the empire. Uh, It was an expensive trade, and no doubt she had uh, a lot of money. We see that as well because her whole household will come to that in just a bit. But she's also a worshiper of God, most importantly, a worshiper of God. She was a convert, a proselyte to the God of Israel and to the way of life of the Jews. And notice as they speak the word, she hears the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. Now, on the one hand, it's a strange thing. Because we just read Luke tell us that she is a worshiper of God who's praying by the river because there's no synagogue to go to and pray. So it would seem that she was pretty low-hanging fruit, if we might put it that way. That she was pretty open to the God of the Scriptures. That she prayed to the Lord. That she was a seeker of God. On the other hand, the Lord opened her heart. Why? Why are we told the Lord opened her heart if she seems so open already? The Lord opened her heart. Well, what's the heart, brothers and sisters? What does the Bible mean by the heart? Does it mean the physical beating organ on the left side of our chest? Is that what our heart is? Kids, the Bible says heart. Does it mean the thing that you can feel right now beating and pumping in your chest? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. What does it mean? Just like the, your heart is at the center of your body, it means your soul, the center of your existence, the depths of who you are. The Lord opened a way into the depths of her soul. But again, why? Why does the Lord need to do this? Why does the Lord need to open up her heart to hear the words of the Apostle Paul? Why? What's wrong with us? Our sins. Our sins. Even the most opened person to the gospel still needs the intervention of the, and the power of God himself to open up a way into their soul to bring them the ability to hear and to respond to the gospel. The heart is Desperately wicked, the prophet says. And beyond understanding. The prophet Ezekiel says that God was going to come in the last days and send His Spirit and replace the stony hearts of the Israelites with what? A heart of flesh. Describing there in transplant ways what is necessary for a sinner in order to hear with profit and to receive the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We call this in the Bible, or Jesus calls this, being born again, doesn't he? The apostles describe this as being regenerated, being given new life. To be born again, to be born from above, to be born from God himself. To be born not of the will of man, as John 1 says, but to be born of God, to become a child of God. And how does one become a child of God? God gives them new life. God gives them birth. 
And so the Lord had to open up her heart. Now, wherever we stand on these sorts of doctrines of grace issues, every single Christian on the face of the planet, I've never met, I've never been a Christian otherwise, who does not pray for the Lord to open the eyes, to open the ears, to open the hearts of their lost spouse, child, co-worker, classmate, teammate, neighbor, or friend. Every Christian deep down inside knows that it is God who saves. And it is God who must do the spiritual surgery that is necessary for a stubborn sinner to come to know him. This should be our prayer. This should be our prayer. Lord, open, fill in the blank, heart. Open his heart. Open her heart, Lord. God uses our words and our, and our trying to explain and he uses our lifestyle, of course. He uses all of our invitations to come to Christ, to come to church. He uses our love and our acts of kindness and our, and our service and our helpfulness to our neighbors. But ultimately, this should be our prayer. Lord, open their hearts. Open their hearts. And when he did, notice, when he did, we read that she paid attention and she was baptized and her house and her house. Now, we're not told here anything about her husband. Did she have a husband? We don't know. Perhaps she did. Perhaps he's part of the household. We're not sure. But no doubt she's a very successful businesswoman. Again, selling in purple goods was a, was a very uh, expensive proposition and so this, uh, these were the best of the best purple dyers. And she has a household notice. She's there by a riverside. There are no men to form a synagogue. And so the first convert in Europe is a woman. And she has a house to invite back the apostle and his two companions to go and to spend time with at that house. Her household would have included, could have included her husband, could have included children but no doubt included her co-workers because they lived with her. They were considered her household. Their husbands, their wives, their children, servants and their children. Anyone who worked for her and lived in the house, which no doubt was a large enough house to have a business going on in it and to invite strangers to stay in it, no doubt she was a very successful person. And her whole household noted was baptized. I'll come back to the household thing in just a bit when we talk about the Philippian jailer, but just uh, keep that in pause. But the Lord does his work. He opens her heart. She believes. They speak the word. She's baptized. And her whole house. We see the Spirit's power in opening up her heart here. Secondly, we see the Spirit's power in exercising another spirit, casting out a different spirit, a demonic spirit, a spirit from the pit of hell, a rebellious spirit. The spirit's power is shown in that. So they're going back to the place of prayer by the riverside outside the city gate, and they were met by a slave girl. And she had, the text says, a, a, a python spirit, a spirit of divination. It's translated as spirit of divination because there was a myth that the temple of Apollos had a mythical snake 
that guarded the temple. And you would go to the temple of Apollos to receive prophecies from the lips of a talking snake. Does that sound like something in the Bible? Interesting, isn't it? That the Greeks had this, had this uh, religious temple and this place of this great god Apollo and his temple was served by and guarded by a speaking snake. This servant girl, this slave girl, she has the spirit in her, this python spirit, this spirit of a demon. She's demon-possessed. Kids, this is a real world of angels and demons. You, you can't see that world. Some of us have stories of when we were first converted and uh, experiencing things that cause every hair on your body to stand. And I know many of you share the same with me. I've probably never told my kids these stories. They're, they're so scary. But there's a real world of heaven and hell, of God and the devil, angels and demons. There's a realm that you cannot see. It's just as real as the stuff that you see right in front of you today. And this girl was possessed by a demon, a spirit of Apollo, this snake spirit, this python spirit. And it was controlling her. And as they were going to the place of prayer notice, she was following the apostle Paul, interestingly. And Silas and Timothy, and I mentioned last time that that plural pronoun we or us now includes Luke as he's no doubt there, uh, he was there, no doubt there in Troy or Troas, and they found him, they met him, and he now becomes a companion. And she's saying, she's crying out, notice, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Well, that seems strange, doesn't it, that a, that a demon would possess a girl who's been speaking these prophecies and bringing much money to her master's but it seems weird now that the demon would cause this girl to speak the truth. These men are servants of the Most High God, not Apollo, but the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Well, isn't a broken clock right twice a day? Do demons believe in God? Even the devil believes in God. Don't ever forget that. The devil believes in God. The demons believe in God. That's why James can say it's not enough just to say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God. Even the devils do. The demons believe in God too. And so this demon possesses this girl and causes her to speak the truth. The question is why? Why? This seems so contrary to all that's going on. Well, it seems like what's going on is this. Now that the true God's servants are there speaking the true way of the true salvation, this demon sort of jumps on the train and now wants to steer the train on the track and wants to take the credit for when the good stuff starts to happen that people would begin to say, oh, these men are coming here and this girl that we know who's prophesied real things, she spoke this real thing and now we, they're all going to praise her and praise her masters and praise her God and bring her temple and bring her masters even more money. The devil wants to advertise, we might say, 
on behalf of the church. God doesn't need the devil's money, brothers and sisters. Doesn't need the devil's uh, props and doesn't need the devil's hype. Doesn't need it at all. But here this demon is trying to latch on to what is inevitable. The gospel is going to come and conquer. And so, for several days, we are told, as they're going around the city, no doubt they are evangelizing, preaching the gospel, meeting people, meeting in homes. No doubt all these wonderful things are happening because we read later on that they met the brothers there at the end of verse number 40. So the fruit of the gospel is not just Lydia, but the brothers in Philippi. Now there's a whole congregation becoming, uh, growing and forming. But for many days she's doing this, and Paul greatly annoyed. Notice he says to the spirit, not to her, but to the spirit. She is merely, she's a slave of the spirit. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And at that very hour, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Now, I'm not an apostle, and none of you are as well. I think I can say that and be on good, term, good, good ground this morning, right? None of us are apostles here. But again, the world of demons and angels is real. And I want you to notice that should we ever encounter any demonic spirit, any power of hell, I want you to notice what the apostle does. Even though, again, he's an apostle and he speaks and it happens. He has a direct authority from Christ. We're not apostles But should we ever encounter something? Notice what Paul says. He merely says, I command you the name of Jesus Christ. There are many people who make lots of money on this kind of stuff. The church is filled with charlatans. It is filled with people whose God is money. And they would lead you to think that the way to exercise demons is to bring that person to them and to follow the ritual, perhaps in the Roman Catholic Church, a certain ritual of authorized exorcists or even in Pentecostalism. If you follow this ritual of this man or this woman and you pray these certain prayers and you, and you, and you babble out in certain languages and so forth and you get all hyped up, that's what's going to lead the demon out. If we can just muster up the spirit to invade this person, to, to cause the, the, the spirit of, of the devil to leave. No. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to be exercised. The power is Jesus Christ. The power is Christ, not us. Even the, angel, the archangel Michael, when he argued with the devil over the body of Moses, what did he say? The Lord rebuke you. Not even the archangel Michael has the power of Jesus Christ. But he commands. He commands. And it happens. So we see the Spirit's power in opening up a sinner's heart to believe. We see the Spirit's power in causing a spirit to leave, a demon-possessed girl. And we see the Spirit's power in turning persecution for good. Now, when this happened, of course, this caused consternation. And we see that they, that they seized Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They accused them. They afflicted them. They jailed them. They beat them. The text says that uh, 
this all happened because the spirit went out of her and so their means of gain went out of them. The spirit that went out of her caused them, their means of gain, to, to leave them. But we see, again, another illustration here in the book of Acts, don't we, of the reality of what Jesus said. If the world hated me, no, surely it's going to hate you. We see here that, as what James says, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You're either for Jesus Christ or you are against him. And here is this apostle and his assistants exercising this demon, bringing the message, the true message of salvation, the way of salvation. And these owners are visibly but spiritually upset. Why would they be so upset? She's been she's been freed. And they can be freed as well. Why be so upset? What's the message that the apostle brings? What's the message that we speak today? That would cause the world to be so upset with us. I mean, what is it about innocent Christians who speak such a simple message of salvation? If you trust in Jesus, you'll be saved. Why is that so threatening to so many people? When we come and we tell people that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that He's the Lord, what are we saying to people? We are proclaiming that there is a King who is above all other powers and kings. And when you say that, you upset people who think that they have the power of life and death. Who think that they sit on a throne. Who think that they sit in an office somewhere, whether it's oval or not. And they think that they are God. But you say, no, 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 there's one who's above you. You would have no authority, as Jesus even told Pontius Pilate, unless it was given to you from on high. And we come and we proclaim a message like the apostle did, the way of salvation, that says to people that salvation is not found in you. There's no amount of self-help that's going to get you to salvation. And the gurus and the self-help experts and the spiritual people out there. There's a new store, in fact, across the street from my kid's school. Maybe it's not new, but it's been there for a year or so uh, after COVID. Uh, there's a new store. I can't remember the name of it, but it's a spiritual store. And you can go there and get all things spiritual. You can get candles. You can get crystals. You can get a tarot reading. You can get your palms read. You can get your fortune told. All of these things, if you would just come in and you would just pay up a little bit. You can have all the mysteries of the universe told to you. When you proclaim that salvation comes through Christ and not yourself, you put people out of business. That's why the gospel is so threatening. Because people would much rather love themselves and serve themselves than the God who has made them. They're put in prison. They're beaten. They're put in prison. 
uh, no doubt in a deep prison, a cave somewhere. In the inner prison, their feet are put in stocks, meaning they're chained to the bedrock. They cannot get out. How do they respond? How do they respond, loved ones? Singing and praying. Singing and praying. Look at that. See that. Hear that again, loved ones. Their response to persecution was singing and praying. Worshiping God. The God who's just allowed them to be put deep into prison, to be beaten, to be unjustly accused, to have their feet put in irons so that they cannot even move. In a dark place. That's why the the, the jailer has to call for lights to bring torches because it's so dark in that dungeon. And they say like Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And notice that when they are singing and praying, what's going on? There are other prisoners as well who were listening to them. Don't ever think that when persecution happens or if false arrests happen or if if you're ostracized from your family uh, or you are shunned or you are canceled in our culture for the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't ever think that they aren't listening. They listen and they hear. Again, may the Lord open their hearts. They're singing and praising God. Singing and praising God. In a great earthquake, it's an Old Testament, that's Old Testament language. When earthquakes happen, who arrives? Who shows up when earthquakes happen? God. God shows up when earthquakes happen. The doors were opened. Of course they were. God was there. Christ was there. Their bonds were unfastened. Did the jailer sneak in in the dark and quietly put the key in there and open it up? Who opened their, their bonds? God did it. God, this is miraculous stuff. God has arrived. The presence of God is there, just like at the tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the jailer awakes. He figures out what's going on. He pulls out his sword, his little gladius, the little Roman sword, and he's going to execute himself because the Roman law said that if you lost your slaves or your uh, accused or those that you were supposed to be overseeing in jail, if you lost them, if you let them out or someone else let them out or you looked the other way, wink, wink, you would yourself be put to death. But they cry out, don't harm yourself, Paul says. Don't harm yourself. We're still here. He's utterly amazed. He's utterly amazed. They have to bring torches. They go down into the dungeon to figure out what is going on. Sirs, notice this question. Not how the door opened without my key. How did those little, those little metal uh, uh, chains with stocks get unloosed? No. Their, his question is, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He knew. He knew that God was there. He knew that God was there. Believe. The great question is, what must I do to be saved? And the good news is to believe in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. 
believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. How many works are involved in that, in that little gospel statement there? Are you sure? There's 613 Old Testament commandments. How many of those commandments are you got to bring with you to get into heaven? Goose egg. None. What must I do to be saved? We saw this in chapter 15 when the, that party of Pharisees that had infiltrated the church and were saying that you must be circumcised and keep all of God's uh, laws, all of Moses' laws to be saved. The apostles said no. We are saved by Christ alone. We receive him by faith alone. There are no works involved here. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the gospel today to you. That's the gospel to you. Don't ever think, well, I think it, it might be easy to think this. We Christians can come off as, 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 as making it feel like or, or seem like to be saved, you've got to do all kinds of stuff. So, on behalf of all Christians, I repent and ask for forgiveness. That is not the gospel. We become stumbling blocks to the gospel because we make people, well, you've got to dress a certain way, you've got to talk a certain way, you've got to do certain things, you can't do other things. The gospel is that Jesus Christ saves sinners. Now, yes, the Holy Spirit is going to invade your life, and yes, you are going to be changed from the inside out. But the gospel is that Jesus Christ saves sinners in whom the Spirit of God does not live, who have done nothing to clean their act up. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ saves sinners. This guy has just beaten the apostle and his companions unjustly. And he's saved. He's saved. They spoke the word. He's baptized. He and all of his family, verse 33. He rejoiced, verse 34, along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This household thing, it comes from the Old Testament. I've mentioned this before, uh, Genesis 17, where God gave the commandment for circumcision to Abraham and to his children and to his entire household which would have meant slaves and servants and children of servants and anyone that was involved in his household, anyone that he cared for, uh, any, uh, any parent or any relative or any friend or any downtrodden neighbor, anyone under the umbrella of his household would have all been, uh, would have all been circumcised because Abraham believed the Lord and it was accounted him as just, uh, uh, for righteousness. In the same way in the New Testament, nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. God speaks the gospel to sinners and, and we come to know the gospel and that has implications that transforms everything around us. That's why Paul can tell the Corinthians that in households where there's only one believing spouse, the husband believes the wife doesn't or vice versa, that the children of that union, the children of that household are holy. Not because they are intrinsically better than their parent, the unbelieving parent. No, they're set apart by God because of the believing parents. And notice, interestingly, and you may have just overlooked this, but notice that verb there. Uh, we read there, he rejoiced along with his household, his entire household. But notice the verb, that he believed. That's a singular verb. He believed in 
the gospel. And because of that, his whole household rejoiced that he believed. And they then were all baptized. And no doubt they were taught. And many of them, too, came to believe. But he believed God saved a sinner. God turned the persecution of Paul and Silas and Timothy, he turned it to good. You're starting to get a little sense here of why it was the Holy Spirit forbade them to go where they wanted to go. Why did they follow this certain path to get to Macedonia? So that Lydia would be saved. The Philippian jailer would be saved. Their households would be baptized. And churches would be established. The gospel was going to come back to Asia Minor, but the Lord had a plan. The Lord had a plan. We see the power of the Holy Spirit here then this morning. Opening up hearts that need to be opened. Hearts that cannot open themselves. We see the power of the Holy Spirit here exercising anti-Christ spirits, which only Christ can do. We see the power of the Holy Spirit here turning opposition into opportunity to evangelize, whether it's in a prison and other prisoners hearing, or the jailer himself coming to believe in his entire household. We see that opposition doesn't thwart the gospel. It only makes more opportunities for the gospel. And so you and I have said this morning some very powerful words that we oftentimes say them. We mouth the words, we lip the words. They go in one ear, out the other. We say them without very much feeling, without very much meaning at times. But you and I have said these very powerful words this morning, haven't we? I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Is that your profession this morning? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit today? May we continue to believe in the Spirit of God. May He continually be our confession of faith with the Father and the Son. That I believe in the Holy Spirit who is able to open up the most hardened heart. Who is able to cleanse sinners from the inside out, even to cast out the devil himself, who is able to turn the persecution that we may very much, uh, very well may be facing and very much uh, may join with brothers and sisters elsewhere, should the Lord not intervene in certain ways, but he's going to turn that into good too. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the good news of Jesus to sinners like us. And your spirit who's been poured out on the day of Pentecost, which we experienced when we came to you and which we continually know as you fill us and empower us. Lord, go with us. Be with us as a church family. Lord, may your spirits continue to burn in this place. Lord Jesus, continue to add oil to the lamp. Trim the wick. Cause it to burn brightly. So that every single sinner who walks into this place would know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior to the glory of God the Father. We ask all this in his name and all of God's people say, Amen.